This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show. I'm Theta. This is episode 11 of the spring 2018 season, and today we are looking at the excellent episode 22 of Darling in the Franks. We spent a good portion of the last two videos dealing with the reveal of surprise aliens uh, and my concern about how it affected our story and especially our themes. In broad terms, I came to believe that conceptually, Verm aren't a huge problem. Uh, their existence alone isn't the issue. The issue is two things, really. One is how their influence on humanity changes the nature of some of our thematic tensions, and that's still something we can debate and pull apart. The other is that the abrupt nature of their introduction gave us a real deus ex machina whiplash, which is because the possibility of aliens or a story larger than Earth was not properly foreshadowed. So what I want to talk about now is how today's episode contains a fantastic example of how foreshadowing should be handled. Uh, I think this was one of the strongest episodes of the series. Um, all the more so for how it has to combine all of the narrative threads and characterizations before it into a brand new situation, and then to evolve that situation in such a way that we're set up for a possible two-part finale going into the next episode. That's a tough task regardless, and not only do I think they nailed it, they used the unwrapping of last episode's cliffhanger mystery to mark our sense of progress throughout today's story. As I said last time in my speculation about what had really happened to Zero Two, this series has never relaxed the tension of a cliffhanger in the opening moments of the following episode. Rather, an episode leaves us with giant questions or conflicts, and then the next episode uses most of its duration to unpack and resolve them. It was exactly because Zero Two appears dead right at the end that I assumed she was not dead at all. The question left is, what exactly did happen to Zero Two? That is the mystery this episode revolves around, even while it advances several other plots and character crises. It's a textbook lesson in how to foreshadow, so we're going to analyze it in that context. The first steps in proper foreshadowing is to introduce elements whose full meaning is not yet understood or even suspected. I think of this as the groundwork. We're going to come back to the specific examples for Darling uh, at the end of this discussion, uh, for reasons that will become clear then, but this is actually the first step to foreshadowing. Now, foreshadowing can be very obvious or very subtle, depending on how much the storyteller wants an audience to focus on the future payoff. Often, as in the case today, there will come a moment when some more attention is drawn to some unknown, and this is what leads to the foreshadow event or reveal. Sometimes this is just an increased focus on a past unknown, and sometimes it is a seemingly new unknown whose connection to past groundwork isn't yet suspected. That second method is what we have today. The mystery and cliffhanger from last time is 
what exactly happened during the connection process that not only allowed them to drive off Verm, but apparently also resulted in the disappearance of the princess, of Zero Two's red skin and antlers, and all of that purple veiny crap. Something during that event resulted in the catatonic Zero Two that we have now. That is the new mystery. That is the new unknown that is meant to draw our focus. However, a seemingly unconnected mystery first shows up as we wait to see what happened to Zero Two. Strelesia, Apis, and other Klaxosaurs are flying up into the heavens, seemingly abandoning Earth all at once. We get to see Hero holding Zero Two on the ground right before that, so we know that it's not them that are flying it off into the distance. Having the weapon that just defeated Verm leave all on its own creates a new tension, as Earth seems to have just lost their one ace in the hole. It's unexplained and unexpected, but we really care a lot more about finding out what happened to our girl. We're eager for the show to help us understand, and it obliges us by continuing past the scene without any comment. And so here is the new unknown that we can't easily link backward. Zero Two is not dead in truth, but is clearly not all there. We've never seen this happen. It doesn't answer anything for us, it just gives us a new mystery. This is often how mystery plots work. You take an initial thing that is unknown, and then reveal something that answers one question, but raises another in its place. Or, sometimes more than one question, as Hero notices the cut on her arm that he has no explanation for. This just piles on the worry for both Hero and the audience, and we don't yet know if we are supposed to connect this to her zombie-like state, or if there is some additional thing to worry over. The next thing they do is also typical of mystery plots, and is often used to help mask foreshadowing elements from being too obvious. The introduction of the red herring. A red herring in literature is an element meant to lead an audience toward a false conclusion. It gets its name from a story in which the strong smell of a smoked fish is used to distract hounds from chasing a hare, giving them a false trail to follow. Ichigo is called to the sick room of the remaining nines, who are in pretty bad shape. We learn that their condition is not from a refusal to eat food, but because they require maintenance. They are in decline without it. We know from the past that Zero Two often needed maintenance herself, and then last episode revealed to us that the Nines are cloned from Zero Two, and so they are, in some ways, the same kind of thing. If the Nines are in a bad way and need maintenance to correct it, then it follows that Zero Two might be undergoing the same decline. Because that scene happens between Hero finding the first cut and then the subsequent two, the series plants the idea of Zero Two falling apart in our mind. Without any other reason to suggest her injuries, we begin to dread that her injuries are a result of this lack of maintenance, a seeming new conflict on top of her deteriorated mental state. It keeps us from connecting her injuries to her condition by giving us a reasonable explanation. It's the red herring. The next development is Zero Two wandering away from her room, an act that first gives Hero hope that she has come back to herself, uh, but that hope is short-lived. She appears to just be staring blankly at the stars. She will later wander off again, this time in the rain, and as Hero finds her, the mystery deepens as he gets to watch new injuries appear from seemingly nowhere as she stares upward. Because we can see light effects in her eyes at the same time as her receiving injuries, we know that they're connected, but this is another example of starting to give an answer, but instead adding a new question. Now, against all of this, we have the worsening condition of Kokoro and the revelation that she is pregnant, 
the discussions of all the problems they are having with failing systems, the limited food stores, the failing of the crops, and the news that growing things may be impossible, and Ichigo becoming bedridden from overwork. Everything in the episode appears to suggest mounting chaos and dread and collapse, and so the increasing injury and mystery of Zero Two appears to be more of the same. She is falling apart just as surely as their struggling community is. Finally, they decide to finally address the mystery by joining it to another mystery. This isn't a necessary step for foreshadowing, but it has a payoff for the audience for a similar reason, explaining things the audience has been expecting to be explained by connecting elements together. In this case, it is the picture book and its final page. This is an obvious foreshadowing element. We know it's something that will eventually be explained. Because of the number of times it has come up, we have been anticipating that it will be an important moment when we finally see it pan out. When it's revealed that she didn't finish the page, neither we nor Hiro can guess what that means. Reading the text though, Hiro concludes that she knew she would one day have to leave him, thus leaving the last page in her story to him. Because we've seen her ball up past attempts to draw this page and avoid speaking about it to Hiro, we can readily believe that she always knew she would follow in that beast princess's footsteps and leave her prince behind. How exactly she's done that isn't clear, but the importance of the storybook mystery being revealed emphasizes the scene. Sure enough, as Hero touches his horns to hers, he can suddenly see into a battle raging in space, and the simultaneous nature of the injury to Apus and to Zero Two fuses all of it together. She is taking damage because Apus is taking damage, which means they are connected right this moment. This is the big reveal. Zero Two's mind is still in Strelesia. The reason this isn't as shocking as surprise aliens is because we can immediately follow the breadcrumbs backward to all the groundwork that we now understand. It is exactly the pleasure the audience gets in making all these connections that is the desired result of properly foreshadowing and then resolving the foreshadowed element. This is why I will now mention all of the early foreshadowing and world building elements I already said were step one, because the payoff for this is in seeing how they all come together at once. Her mental absence makes sense because her mind is somewhere else. The possibility for this was already suggested in the series in the nature of the girls' connections to their Franks. When they are connected, they speak as their Franks rather than as themselves, even showing up in comms that way. When they discover their suits have dissolved and left them nearly naked, they instinctively try to cover up, yet what moves is not their actual hands and arms, but the hands and arms of their Franks. This means that their minds are connected to the Franks in a direct way. The attempt to cover up is reactionary and instinctual, yet the signal is not sent to their actual bodies, but to the Franks. That silly scene suddenly has a lot more value. It's also one of the moments where we learned that the girls can experience the pain that their Franks feel. When they are first sprayed by the goo, they all stop at first, but then conclude that it doesn't hurt. It seems fine. Miku was similarly affected in Episode 3 when the Klaxosaurus attacked Argentia's face and it causes her to pass out. And then, in Episode 14, when Delphinium lost an arm trying to stop Strelesia, we later see that Ichigo's same arm is in a sling. Put all this together, and we understand that for the pistols, the connection process creates a two-way bond between their mind and the Frank's bodies. They can send commands and also receive pain in return. No one ever sat down and spelled this out for us. So in this moment, when both we and Hero make the leap to understand what happened to Zero Two, 
we get the added satisfaction of having all these past moments elevated in importance, even though he had no reason to suspect they mattered so much at the time. The same thing happens with his ability to see the battle in space. We've seen them touch horns before out of affection, sure, but being able to connect their minds together? Isn't that something that only happens while piloting? Well, it turns out no. Last episode, we had Hero connect to the Klaxosaur Princess by grabbing her appendages and concentrating. He did something similar in episode 15 when he couldn't connect by conventional means. He instead grabbed Zero Two's antler-like growths and concentrated to connect to her then as well. This is probably all due to the shared Klaxosaur nature between these three. Um, indeed, the fact of the princess speaking telepathically suggests that mental connections might be easier between them than between humans. However, it wasn't so obvious to Hero that he was expecting it. After all, those previous connections took place inside of Frank's, where connecting usually occurs. And yet still, the possibility of connecting this way had been set up for us without knowing that it would later become important. Then of course, the big way this was foreshadowed was the picture book. We were given pretty explicit foreshadowing that the two would separate one day because of how closely their story mirrored the one in the book. We're expecting that mystery to be resolved, but without knowing how. When it does, its fulfillment of another mystery at the same time makes that other mystery seem less of a surprise and more of an inevitability. Suddenly, everything mysterious in the episode clicks into place. Strelizia Apus didn't abandon Earth, Zero Two is inside, and she's taking the fight to Verm. She wasn't injured because she is collapsing like the Nines, but because she is connected to Apus and it's taking damage. She isn't staring up at the sky because she's lost her mind, but because her mind is actually up there. Well, I guess she did lose her mind. Now, if you watched my speculation last time, you'll know that I thought Zero Two had most likely joined to Strelizia. Not only was this consistent with our themes and some other symbolic elements they had set up, but it was foreshadowed by the picture book. I said it was unlikely that her merely reverting to some monstrous form would result in her running away. So changing into something wholly unlike what she had been before was the most likely outcome. In this case, that meant changing into being a robot. But this is no amazing deduction on my part. I said before that good stories are predictable. They are able to be predicted. Her joining Strelizia like this is just a natural continuation of things the story was already doing. It didn't even go completely the way I expected. I mean, what they did was way better. Uh, but that is exactly what good foreshadowing setup and payoff should look like. I couldn't guess exactly how it turned out, but it makes complete sense in retrospect. It was predictable, but it wasn't obvious. We knew to expect the question of the last page to be answered. We didn't notice that the answer had been spread throughout the work already like breadcrumbs leading out of a forest. And we didn't notice because they didn't draw attention to the importance of those elements. Either they cover them up with some other crisis in that moment, or some exciting unveiling of backstory, or by covering them up with humor. Like a good mystery though, the reveal answers some questions and raises some new ones. Okay, Zero Two isn't brain dead or actually dead. She's just actually connected to a giant robot in space. Cool, now what? I mean, that's not an actual resolution of the conflict. Well, in a truly amazing move, the reveal of the picture book actually contains more foreshadowing in it. The page isn't filled in, it's incomplete. What's more, it doesn't seem to contain the actual last line from the original, which is, in profound sadness, the prince searched all across the land for her, but nobody had seen the princess. 
Hero, seeing the book is incomplete, concludes that she has left the last page to him, and he's right. How their story ends depends on what he does now. In this episode, he does indeed search all across the land, and nobody has seen her, not really. Yet he can change the ending. More to the point, it is now foreshadowed that he will write the actual ending to the story. How exactly that shakes out, we'll have to see, but considering his choice immediately afterward, it's fair to guess that he will be writing that ending. So, that is foreshadowing handled really, really well. Considering how much I've bagged them for not setting Verum up, I thought it would be appropriate to show that they really do know how to do it, as well as demonstrate how satisfying it is to us when it all comes together. We actually have a similar situation in theme today, which we'll address when we get there. Um, last time I shared with everyone the beginning of an idea I had about how reading or books or stories might themselves be a pattern to the story, uh, sharing the two examples of how books were causal to the actual plot. I asked for people's thoughts on this, and man, you guys delivered. Uh, thanks to this, I think I am starting to put a lot of our patterns together and today will be the first attempt at a cohesion between lots of elements that we've observed uh, up till now. I also completely missed the significance of something, which makes me feel really stupid, um, but I will share that during theme. As I said, the more of a story you see, the more clearly theme comes into focus, and I have been so stoked writing the script as I start to see it all kind of interconnect. So, walk through first, and then we will dive in. So sometimes during the series we've had episodes that had a bit of their own sub-theme, um, a thematic cohesion that unites the episode itself in a way that makes it feel like a distinct piece, rather than simply one twenty-fourth of the whole story. Today's episode is an example of that, and the topic of this cohesion is choice and consequence. The squad has slowly come to a place where they value self-determination, perhaps even more than individuality. This led to Hero's request to Papa to set them free after the next mission um, at the end of episode 19. They want the right to choose, their fates, their purpose, their futures, their life beyond piloting. Even though it happened in a different way than expected, today's episode begins with the squad basically being granted that freedom. It turns out that freedom can be a lot of work. Choices have consequences, as every choice one makes alters the future in a way that cannot always be foreseen. One of the things that impresses me about this episode is how the consequences of the squad's freedoms and attempts to sort out what they should do uh, has been handled. Rather than treating the collapse of the rigid authority above them as some instant good that ushered in a utopia, they instead have to face all of the other things that collapse in the process. The oppressive control of ape society may have crushed them from above, but it also supported their lives from below. Like a child leaving home, or a bird forced from the nest, the sudden gift of freedom to choose goes hand in hand with the sudden loss of anyone to shield you from the outcomes of those choices. This episode begins with the quote that no one can swim in the same river water twice, a saying which implies that constant change is a universal and inescapable fact of existence. The squad's world has been completely upended, as they are suddenly gifted a degree of autonomy they've never possessed. But it is not, I think, what they expected. 
It is much like their desire during episode 18 to somehow stay on at Mistletine. They had found a way to live on their own and had a taste of self-determination, yet the changing state of the world and Mistletine itself made that wish impossible. I suspect they thought that this new situation without Papa and Ape would return them to a similar state, uh, but this is not the case. The river flows whether you will it or oppose it. No one is ready for Strelesia Apus to take off with the other Claxosaurs, or for Zero Two to be empty, or for the host of maintenance issues to fall on their shoulders, or for the need to look out for the other squads to suddenly become their problem. This developed largely as we expected from last time, with Squad 13 in a unique position among our survivors to take charge. This isn't only because of their experience in surviving on their own, but because they had already taken steps toward thinking about taking their own actions and making their own choices. The rest of society has mostly just followed orders, even into their deaths. Only Squad 13 has had any practice giving themselves orders. As the need to plant food and bury the dead, care for the injured, and plan for the future all become apparent, it is easy to understand why they would find themselves the ones able to organize and therefore lead. As already mentioned, we get to see the state of Zero Two without any explanation. Um, we're not going to restate everything we already covered when we talked about foreshadowing. Instead, I want us to note that the two physical symbols for her and Hero's relationship are present in her room, the recreated picture book and the cracked but mostly restored mirror. As we will learn, neither is quite complete, one unfinished and the other unable to be made perfectly whole again. Now, we will talk more about this in theme, but one pattern that is pretty strong this episode is the power of purpose. We'll mostly defer examples as we walk through, but I do want to go ahead and point out Hero's case. There has never been a more important time for the unique Squad 13 to pull together and work as a team. And yet, with Zero Two in this state, Hero is unable to contribute the way he should. He long ago made Zero Two his purpose, and without her, the river of change is likely to sweep him away. His lack of contribution to their efforts is going to end up putting strain on the others as this episode progresses. This is something we can immediately see after the credits, as the squad discusses all their various systems and situations and tries to chart their course, while Hero struggles to even pay attention. From their discussion, we can tell that they are the ones having to worry about things like water purification and food reserves and so on. This strikes me as a rare justification of an anime trope that usually is not justified at all. What I mean is that it is not uncommon in anime for there to be some group that has decision-making power way out of proportion to the kind of power they should realistically have. The most frequent example of this is the student council of an anime high school, which is frequently portrayed as having broad power to impose rules and discipline on fellow students uh, to a degree that beggars belief. This is really just an example of what TV Tropes calls the competent zone, a phenomenon where the characters in a show will be competent or not based on their proximity to the age range of the target audience. The younger the target audience, the younger the characters who are treated as competent will be. As high school age is the prime target for a lot of anime, you end up with a lot of these situations where real-world minors seem to be the only ones able to do anything well, or make decisions that are beneficial. In Darling and the Franks, however, the singular nature of Squad 13 and the dehumanized, mechanical nature of the rest of society actually set this up to have this group of teenagers be the ones in charge in a way that's believable. But because they are still just inexperienced teens, they don't have all the answers, 
and some of their efforts don't turn out as hoped. It's a small thing, I know, but it impresses me, and I wanted to point it out. Now, there is more going on in this scene than just a laundry list of what to do. We get a glimpse of Mitsuru looking at Kokoro distractedly, beginning a series of small moments in the episode where we notice how much more he notices her and worries over her. She will also leave the meeting suddenly, reminding us of her likely pregnancy symptoms. Futoshi also begins a conversation about the rightness or morality of continuing to use magma energy. It's pointed out how many ways they rely on it, and the squad doesn't have any opportunity to explore alternatives, but they point it out begrudgingly. They seem to realize that the issue is more complicated than they are prepared for. Again, a small thing, but it shows that despite how they've lived their whole lives, once faced with the truth, they are able to empathize with their once enemies, the Klaxosaurs, and question the wisdom of the very energy source that makes their lives possible. It's both impressive that they even think to worry about such a thing, and impressive that the writers don't let them have some easy pat solution to the issue. Anyway, like I said, Hiro is too distracted to contribute, and Ichigo tries to encourage him and offer support to him after the meeting. She is upbeat, but is likely putting on a brave face. They really need Hiro's support and help in all this, and they are lucky they have Ichigo and Goro. Even the other squads recognize Ichigo's leadership, as a girl from the infirmary comes to her specifically to share the news that the surviving nines are no longer eating. Uh, we went over this scene already. Uh, let's just note that they seem to have lost any will to live on top of whatever else is going on with their bodies. Uh, we'll come back to that. Next up, Goto has apparently been asking fake Nana for help attending to their many problems. I predicted last time that most of our authority structures would likely collapse, but some adults would probably remain. Now we get to see that even though the source of authority and hierarchy in the world is gone, those remaining are still acting like nothing has changed. Fake Nana won't do anything without Papa's approval. When Goto points out that this means they will all likely die, she is matter-of-fact in agreeing that, yes, I suppose so. For Goto, who has largely completed the journey to self-determination, this reaction is shocking and appalling. He doesn't just widen his eyes in surprise, he actually steps backwards, as though affronted or afraid. And he likely should be afraid. Fake Nana is probably not the only example of someone left in the world who has no ability for independent decision-making. Goto and Ichigo chat next, and we can infer that each is constantly working on their situation. As I said at the outset, this episode explores how much their situation is not automatically better just because they have freedom and choice. As Goto says, life in the outside world is hard, huh? Ichigo brings up the quote that Goto narrated from the opening again, attributing its origin to something Hiro shared with her in the past, something Goto also shared when he quoted the line. Next is the second discovery of cuts on Zero Two and Hiro's bewilderment. We've been over that, but we see Hiro arrive late to their crop planting efforts immediately afterward. His discovery of Zero Two's condition was at night, and his apparently terrible state this morning suggests that Hiro is not sleeping very well, if at all. As we can see everyone else out here also working hard, we get the growing sense of the toll their situation is taking on the team. And, just to remind us that they have more to worry about than what they will eat in a year, the remains of a fight between a Klaxosaur and Vermasaur plunge to the earth nearby. We'll ignore that an impact this close would have actually leveled Bird's Nest and everyone around there. Um, the actual revelation is that the fight is ongoing somewhere nearby, and they are not suddenly safe from it. 
More Klaxosaurs take flight as if to confirm this, which adds to the growing chaos and helplessness that is growing among our characters. To further ratchet that up, Kokoro collapses, this time in distress and not merely nausea. Mitsuru is immediately concerned and kneels over her. Once again, he calls out to her as Kokoro, and once again we can note that doing so causes him pain. As this instance with Kokoro is more pronounced than the rest, we finally get medical attention for her, discovering the thing that they have hinted at for some time. She is pregnant. But no one knows what that means. It seems she really never did share any of the details of the maternity book with the others. In fact, Fake Nana had to consult their database to determine what the hormone they detected even suggested. While I still find it hard to believe that Ape would take them for breaking the sex taboo and not test for something like that, it does seem that it's not something they normally think to look at. I even guessed back then that being pregnant would probably interfere with connecting to the Franks, uh, which they confirm right away, giving them even more reason to have looked for that before that last important mission. Now that pregnancy blocking piloting thing made sense to me because in, in one sense, a woman who is pregnant is not actually fertile. Um, that's basically how a lot of birth control methods work. They trick the body into thinking it's pregnant, which makes it unlikely to actually become pregnant. Ikuno and Ichigo's experiment and Dr. Franks's backstory tell us that the ability to reproduce seems to be the key factor. The two pilots must be capable of reproducing with one another for it to work. Even though Kokoro is basically in the process of reproducing right now, she technically can't reproduce with whoever she pilots with while pregnant. Obviously Mitsuru is the dad, but this would block her from any other stamen arrangement as well. Anyway, I wondered how they would handle this when it finally happened. I like that they skipped straight from the questions to the reaction, and the way that the whole squad is there to learn it at the same time. Kokoro and Mitsuru's aghast shock is especially evocative. It's not positive or negative, it's just pure bewilderment, a bolt from the blue. Without the memory wipe, Kokoro wouldn't have been ecstatic at this news. Instead, she's completely lost, begging for someone to tell her what she should do. How insidiously dehumanizing is that mind wipe now? Now, fake Nana indicates abortion as the normal course of action, which makes sense if pregnant women can't pilot and the parasites don't exactly have a lot of body autonomy. But I don't think there's any risk of this actually happening. I'm sure this is setting up Kokoro to have a conflict of purpose, where she currently believes her job is to fight compared to her previous purpose of wanting to have a baby. She can't have both, and this may force a choice, which, as I said, seems to be one of the uniting themes of this episode. That aside, I feel like Kokoro's baby is actually the safest thing in this universe. The sheer weight of fertility symbolism and rebirth themes and the idea of returning spring and so on says to me that a new birth among our squad is the only thing that will happen for sure by the end of the series. Her pregnancy has great thematic importance, but almost no narrative importance. The vast amount of time we have focused on everything it took to lead here says to me that it's a sure thing. I would believe anyone else in the series is more expendable, including Kokoro. We also see an admittance date on the brief flash of her medical chart, May the 8th. It's hard to guess the due date exactly here, because morning sickness usually doesn't start immediately upon becoming pregnant, but closer to a month in and often later. Conception happens during the end of cherry blossom season, as we saw, um, but that varies depending on latitude. However, I think first half of April start seems plausible, 
which puts our due date somewhere around the new year. Considering how far away our squad's destination ends up being at the episode's end, I feel a time skip with their return and the baby's birth coinciding is probably in the cards. Anyway, inside the chaos of these revelations, Ichigo has the presence of mind to ask the boys to step outside. Even though the squad didn't even know what pregnancy was until a moment ago, somehow they understand instinctively that this is something the girls should talk out themselves. Kokoro is not the only one who wants someone to tell them what to do. Outside, Mitsuru asks the same thing of Hiro. Like I said last time, despite Ichigo's role as leader, Hiro often functions as a type of spiritual leader for the group, so it's no wonder that Mitsuru turns to him in this moment. Yet here again, the state of Zero Two makes Hiro incapable of fulfilling the role that his squadmates expect of him. He has no answer for Mitsuru because he has no answer for himself. Here is our squad, suddenly able to choose their fates, and the weight of the unknown consequences and outcomes paralyzes them. We will skip the further escalation with Zero Two since we've covered it. Instead, we get an escalation in stress as they discover that their hard efforts in planting crops are apparently for naught. They are withering in the ground. It's not looking good, but a first tiny break in their favor happens next as Hachi returns to them with a wheelchair-bound Nana in tow. She looks as though her luck has not been any better than the squad's of late. This results in a quick flashback to show us what Hachi has been up to. Apparently, Hachi is no different than the rest of the non-13ers, and needs orders about what he should do. As it happens, Dr. Franks arranged for just such orders to find him should the doctor die. These instructions indicated that he get Nana and head to whatever this facility is, where he would make a series of discoveries. One is the database of adults whose brains have been copied and archived. Now we know that they all got assimilated into Verm last time, and Nana recalls the words they said when they did so, I'm wondering if there is any significance to having those memories archived. Like, aren't the adults gone? Or can this database figure into some future event? Anyway, the other discovery is some part of this facility that registers as a void in the database. This suggests to me that it is unofficial. It's off-grid. Considering what it holds, this stands to reason. The stored children that disappeared from Garden. I had guessed last time that finding these children would likely be part of our story down the stretch. As they were potential parasites, they should also be fertile one day, and they are going to be necessary if humanity wants any chance of being restored. I did not expect them to be frozen, though it looks like we guessed right that Naomi would be among them if she still lived. Since they are not being used to produce more parasites, and considering the somewhat hidden nature of this facility, I'm willing to bet that Ape is not the one behind their storage here. Rather, this is Dr. Franks' doing and hence why the message triggered on his death. I suddenly recall two things about Dr. Franks. One is his comment after the Nine's first visit to Mistletane, where he remarks on the development of humanity's original reproductive instincts and how it's far beyond his expectations. Do you think he has this little cache of future fertile children in mind when he says this? A hidden population of children outside of Ape's system? The other thing I think of is his late fiancée, Karina. The thing she wanted for herself was to have a child, a wish she never got. Any chance this unfulfilled desire sits in the back of Dr. Franks' mind as he was setting all of this up? Now, I didn't really talk about this last time, but I think the context of Dr. Franks' death is meant to indicate to us that he fulfilled a redemption arc. He was the amoral mad scientist, no doubt. But while Hero told him he'd never forgive him for what he did to Zero Two, 
Zero-2's own parting words to him were thanking him for making the two of them possible. What's more, he's only out there to be killed at all because he went with her to open the portal and reunite them, sundering his arm in the process. It doesn't make him the good guy, but I believe he's probably being portrayed as achieving redemption in our story, especially since the person with the most right to judge him chooses to do the opposite. I think he comes a long way from the torture and experiments of the 13th episode. We might think of his journey as being from Karina's death down into despair, which becomes an obsession with the princess and the project to clone her. The events Hero witnessed are basically his low point in this journey. But with Hero and Zero Two's efforts to be with one another, even if thwarted, he starts to rise back out again. This ultimately leads in him choosing to take her to Plantation 13 on the off chance that they could reunite. He continues to rise all the way until last episode, sacrificing himself and giving her permission to hate him. Since he does get to see Sterlesia Apus in its glory before dying, I think we're supposed to read that as him achieving his redemption. With the events this episode that imply he was secretly planning a backup for humanity, Reading him as someone who only cared about his own research and his princess obsession starts to feel wrong. Pigeonholing him as a simple mad scientist seems hasty. I think he is perhaps more complicated and conflicted of a person than he seems at first blush. Don't forget his statements about the immortality treatment. More than anything, it strips us of all beauty. He will say something similar about the mass of Klaxosaur cores that makes up Ringhorn. More than anything, it isn't beautiful. These would be odd value judgments from a character who is some emotionless pursuer of empirical data with no remaining humanity. Instead, it seems likely that Dr. Franks is the only person his age that wasn't fully swept up in Ape's transformation of society, even though he was instrumental to its process. He might be the only such person from the time before magma energy. In an odd way, he is a standard bearer for humanity embodying some of our best and some of our worst qualities. He's done some heinous things by our standards, but he also might have been the only person thinking in terms of humanity's future apart from Ape and the Plantations. Thus, the email that comes to Hachi, where not only does he show them where the missing children are, he gives them a new directive, become the children's new adults. That is a plan for a future, no matter how tenuous. But it's not that simple, consistent with our theme, as returning to the present, we see that Nana does not know how she's supposed to do that. The children want their help anyway, and Hachi's investigation of the crops lead him to believe that magma extraction has depleted the very soil of life. As Ikuno states, it's as though the planet itself has rejected them. I'm really glad they did it this way. We talked before about the idea of ape as priest kings whose own infertility was being reflected in the earth itself. Barren people, barren land. Now that they are removed, the land does not magically get better. Rather, the lack of any real leadership, any real king, means that there is no fertile figure to restore the land to fertility. Until the parasites are in true leadership over the world, the land will be likely unable to recover. This is one blow too many for Ichigo, who collapses from what we will learn is overwork. Not that it's totally his fault, but Hiro's absence status in sharing the load of leadership is probably contributory. He's not even out here to witness this new crisis. At this moment of maximum collapse, it begins to rain. It's an interesting choice. Um, I wouldn't have guessed it would rain at all in this world until some return to a more natural state was achieved. 
We might think of it as the first step towards that state, but the way the rain is used here is ominous. It reminds me a lot of the water dripping sequence from episode 5. Actually, this whole episode shares a lot of tonal similarity to the fifth one. The rain plays over a short montage of the situation. The looming Klaxosaurus pointed skyward, the gravesite for the parasites lost in the last battle, the failing crops in front of Bird's Nest, Hero desperately running after discovering Zero Two's absence, Kokoro holding her abdomen while in thought, Mitsuru stopping short of knocking on her door to just speak to her. It's, um, it's not going well. Ichigo is bedridden from her exhaustion, from worrying about everyone but herself, as Ikunu puts it. This is, again, I think something that's really well done. Of course, the teenage girl put in charge of basically humanity itself is going to be in over her head. Her will is stronger than her body can handle. There's a price to be paid for their attempts to self-govern. Goto is galvanized to try to solve their most recent crisis, seeking Hiro out for collaboration, but he is still absentee still far too distracted by Zero Two's situation. We can feel Goto's mounting frustration. This then leads to Hiro witnessing Zero Two taking damage in front of him, and the picture book revelation and all that, so we won't go over it again, um, but it does set up our final section. We find that Goto was not discouraged by Hiro's preoccupation, as he and Hachi are searching the world via satellite. What they find is their old home, Misteltine, still green in the midst of all the wasteland. Hachi reveals that its soil predates magma extraction, and so a hope of being able to use it to restart the process of planting and expanding the fields presents itself to them. Here is the first step away from our crises. This is a good time to bring up the mythological significance of Mistletine once more, or rather, the significance of what Mistletine means. Mistletoe. We've covered it before, but I am going to restate it in brief for newer viewers. Mistletoe held significance in a lot of ancient cultures because it was believed to harbor great powers of restoration. It got this association due to its nature as an evergreen parasite that attached itself to deciduous trees. In winter, when all the leaves fell off and humans were at great psychological stress due to the lack of food, mistletoe remained green and vibrant. It was actually believed that the mistletoe might be storing the vitality of the tree in itself, and when spring arrived, it returned that vitality to the tree, which put forth its greenery once more. Thus, just as many symbols of springtime are synonymous with hopeful return to life and rebirth, the mistletoe held this special restorative association. Now, in-universe, our mistletoe stand-in is quite literally holding the vitality of the land in itself and will now be used to return it in a small way. Owing to Star Entity's destruction of Plantation 13 and the giant indentation it left, the satellite image now actually looks like the hand of humanity reaching out to grasp just the tiniest bit of hope. As Goto leaves to share this news with the others, Hiro shows up, reaching out for his own small hope. He will join the rest in their conference room to explain the situation with Zero Two and the solution he has found for himself. Somehow, the Klaxosaurus have left a ship that humanity can interact with, and Hero's momentary flashback suggests that it's something the princess arranged as part of her turning the planet's fate over to Hero and Zero Two. However, the course is set for Mars, which implies that this is where the battle is taking place. When he shares this, the squad immediately raises objections and questions. To each of these, though, he simply deflects or accepts the potential consequence. 
When Ikuno makes sure he knows they mean he could lose his life, she glances back to see how Ichigo reacts to this, and she does her standard little downward head tilt that implies a feeling of defeat. After Hiro finishes admitting that it's reckless, he says he'll never be able to forgive himself if he doesn't act now, and he matter-of-factly says goodbye and leaves them. This is finally too much for Goto and his building frustration. They have so much to do to try to restart humanity, and it's straining them all. His beloved Ichigo was literally bedridden from overwork, and here's the already absentee hero proclaiming that he's leaving them, possibly forever. How dare he leave them now? And Hiro counters. He made a promise with Zero too. She fulfilled her end, and now it's his turn. He gets emotional himself, causing his horns to glow and, it seems, reveal his transformation to the rest of the squad. Rather than blanch from this outburst, though, Goto escalates the situation, accusing Hiro of never stopping to think about the rest of them, of making his own decisions and running off. Just like in Episode 5, Goto finds himself faced with a hero who seems willing to rush to his own demise without any thought of how it would affect the others. So here is the thing about the freedom to choose. Sometimes the choices are hard. Sometimes you're going to be letting someone down no matter what. The squad chose to be free and somehow got it, but as Goro says, forget freedom, they've got their hands tied on every single thing. You can't make a choice only assuming that will work out the way you want. There's consequences. Hiro is largely the one who made this choice for them, and now he's not going to stick around for the fallout? Goto puts all their fears and stresses into words here, something that everyone had hesitated to do, and the culmination of all these pressures named affects the squad. They get emotional. They feel the weight of the strain anew. And there is nothing that Goto says here that is untrue. Hiro doesn't deny or argue with any of it. Yet still, he must go. If Zero Two won't smile for him, he feels he may as well be dead. Goto socks him for this, and the conversation breaks down. But what Hiro is saying is true also. The benefit of giving up your self-determination is that you never have to face these kinds of scenarios. It's always decided for you. Having to choose your own way is not a stress that they are familiar with. But despite the fact that Hiro is leaving them in a bad place, his unyielding determination still affects the squad. Miku wonders aloud if they'll ever find anything like that, something that they choose over anything else. The momentary isolated shot of Mitsuru here is no accident. He's wondering the same thing lately. Or rather, I think he has someone in mind and can't quite decide how much he is allowed to care or how he should act. Ichigo and Goro also reflect on the fight. Though Ichigo thanks him for his words, Goto says he was only really thinking of himself. As he says, I'm the one scared of the world I chose myself. And Ichigo agrees. She feels the same way. But all they can do is find their own true path in life. No one can stop the river's flow. Scary as it is, this right to self-determination is just the thing they eventually coveted, and fought for, and gained. That right to choose. All they can do is keep looking for the right path until they find it. Over these words, we see Mitsuru reach into his pocket. As the shot immediately switches to a close-up of Kokoro's left hand, I think it's a sure bet that the wedding ring or rings are what he has in there. I suspect he is making his own choice in that moment. We then get a brief look at that room with the satellite, the view of Mistletine still centered. Hachi is there, but has been joined by other adults, so it seems some work towards getting that pre-magma soil is underway. 
Yet another person has come to this room searching for a small glint of hope, as Nine Alpha has struggled his way here from his bed. Finally, Nana happens past one of the infirmary rooms where a parasite is quietly weeping. She is still lost in all this, and apprehensive about what she should do. When she cannot get her wheelchair into the room, she is now the one who has to make a choice. Either accept that her defeated state, in which she lost her role, is the state in which she wants to continue, or find a way into that room to be the adult for that child. And she stands up. But just like the squad has discovered, choosing for yourself doesn't automatically make everything fine or easy. And as she starts to reassure the child, she has another moment of doubt. She pushes it aside, though, and embraces her. The next morning, Hero is suited up and leaving for the ship, downcast in spite of getting the chance to go after Zero Two. He chose this, but that doesn't make it easy. His squad has made their own choice in the interim, though, and they are going to go with him, to bring him to Zero Two. Of course, they also want to take the fight to Verm. There is more to protecting this new start to their lives than planting crops and finding clean water. All of the warnings they gave Hero apply to themselves, and they know this. They are exercising their power to choose. That desire seems to have rubbed off on the Nines as well, who show up next to join our expedition. They frame it as fulfilling their purpose to fight, but the truth is that they are still choosing this. Papa didn't order them to do it. No one ordered them to do it. I don't think they expect to make it out alive, and I don't think we should expect that either. During this, real Nana tells fake Nana to take care of things while we're gone. It appears that Nana, at least, is intending to go with them, though whether that is just to the side of the ship or actually into space, I don't know. Probably just to the ship, since there's a lot of children that need her guidance now, but I wouldn't be opposed to some surprise Nana piloting action. Fake Nana, on the other hand, is probably just happy to have someone tell her what to do. Goto confronts Hiro, and Hiro expects more of a fight, but Goto relents. Hiro made his choice, and they're going to accept it. But that also means that he has to accept theirs. Even if Hiro wanted to protest about the rest of them risking themselves for his goal of getting to Zero Two, he can hardly counter them now. Kokoro and Mitsuru are not dressed in their combat suits. As discussed before, Kokoro is probably unable to pilot while pregnant, so for the moment it seems they will be staying behind. Right at the end, Mitsuru walks up to Hiro, questioning, and Hiro nods. We get a wide shot in the middle, which makes me think that Mitsuru asks him something that we don't get to hear. I'm not totally sure what this is about, though the cut to Kokoro looking on suggests that it's about her. Does he want Hiro's blessings to choose Kokoro and figure things out there? Is he simply explaining that he won't be going with Hiro because he is staying with Kokoro and the child, and Hiro is accepting and agreeing with this choice? Mitsuru grips his hand that was previously in the pocket, so I'm guessing he must be gripping his or both wedding rings here. I might get my speculation about the pain of putting the ring on Kokoro affecting the story after all. Or I'm way off, and Mitsuru is actually asking to pilot with Hiro and fulfill that long promise, figuring that it will work now that Hiro is Klaxosaur-like, and so probably functions like the Nines. Considering their number, though, I feel like Hiro temporarily piloting with one of the Nines until he gets to Strelizia makes a little more sense. Anyway, over this whole end affair, Goto resumes narration, talking again about the river analogy and the unstoppable force of change. But, he says, if that nature of our world scares you out of appreciating what you have now, you'll never grasp any kind of future for yourself. This is pretty in line with the uniting theme for this episode. 
The squad gets to exercise their self-determination for the first time, and the results are frightening and confusing and exhausting. They put out one fire, and another takes its place. Life was easier when they didn't choose or need to take responsibility, like fake Nana is doing, like Nana tried to do, like Kokoro has been doing. But if they want a future, if they want that life beyond piloting, they have to reach out and make that choice themselves. As Hiro said last time, fight to live. Come whatever may. In goals, today's episode was mostly about exploring this life beyond piloting goal. Despite the way it complicates their life, by the end, our squad has decided they still want this option to choose their own path. Thus, they choose something new in order to help protect the new life. This is still the guiding principle of our squad. In Kokoro Wants a Baby, uh, you have a baby. Like I said earlier, this now becomes a conflict between her re-accepted purpose of fighting and her now forgotten purpose of having a baby. Maybe this will become a crisis for her next time? Um, I suspect Mitsuru will have something to say on the matter either way. This is still a weird place for a goal in the way we think of them, in that it is not her goal at the moment, but we know it could return as such. We have a new unknown goal for Mitsuru. We're guessing it's related to Kokoro, but something is obviously driving him there at the end. In a moment, we're going to discuss how important purpose is, and so Mitsuru potentially having a goal of his own is an important thing to note, uh, even if we don't know what it is yet. Finally, a new goal for Hiro, get to zero two, the mirror of uh, zero two's last time. This is pretty self-explanatory. Um, he proved this time that this takes precedence over everything else he values, even the new lives they fought to have for themselves. It suggests, too, that if his options are between staying with her but never returning home, and then actually getting to live out the new future, that he is going to choose the former. For conflicts, the Verm invasion basically didn't end last time as it seemed. There is still a battle close at hand, with more Klaxosaurs emerging and joining it the whole time. We aren't waiting and fortifying against some eventual return. Instead, they pursued them and took the fight to Verm. I'm not sure if the goal is to wipe out the Vanguard so they can't get back to the rest of the army or what, uh, but we will find out in short order. Finally, our Apath situation. Whatever can or can't be done here is going to determine what happens if Hero and the squad get to the battle. Zero Two's mind is in Strelizia, but is that the only complication? Is the princess in there somewhere too? I mean, someone is coordinating all those Klaxosaurs that are flying into space. Um, for now, we will just await some more details. In theme, I want to start out with a concept we first talked about back in episode 6, the power of purpose. When Hiro appears to die during the fight with Target Beta, we see a sort of spiritual realm that makes even Hiro himself believe that he has died. In it, he has a conversation with Naomi about how he had no regrets because he got to pilot a Franks and be of use to everyone, leading her to accuse him of being a liar. Then he sees Zero Two under the mistletoe tree that we don't yet realize the importance of, and he thanks her for letting him find a place for himself again, to belong as a child. She too rejects this statement from him, walking away sadly. When he comes to, he realizes that they didn't win after all, and Zero Two was frantically fighting on. This galvanizes him to pull himself basically back to life. I said then that while this looks like he was being saved by the power of love, to me this seemed more like the power of purpose. 
To me, power of love is when love is treated like some mystical force that saves someone who is receiving that love. That is, the saving power comes from outside. For the power of purpose, it's a saving power that comes from inside, from a new goal that one can use to center themselves. Sure enough, that episode ends with him proclaiming that his new reason to pilot the Franks is to be Zero Two's wings. We marked this change at the time, where before Hero had the goal of finding a place to belong, it is this moment where he decides that living for Zero Two is more important than dying for Papa and his duty. Ever after, belonging is no longer part of his purpose, only supporting and loving Zero Two. This will lead him into conflict with his squad at times, and then ultimately into conflicts with social taboos and the rulers of the planet themselves. Thus, the theme I want to focus on right now is this idea of the power of purpose, because both the absence and seizing of purpose are on display in this episode, along with the results. Hero is one of the more obvious examples, since we already know his purpose. With Zero Two in her catatonic state that he can't understand, he is basically useless for anything else, to the frustration and detriment of all those around him. Once he realizes what has happened and what he can try to do about it, he has complete focus. He immediately breaks the news to the others without even dragging out the goodbye, he does not waver when confronted or assaulted by Godro, and that knight even seems to find some peace in staying beside Zero Two, hand in hand with that incomplete page opened before them. His choice to chase after her may be the way that he finishes this page in truth. Nana is another obvious example. When Hachi has first picked her up, she asks why he didn't just leave her alone. She says she doesn't serve a purpose anymore. The fact of being wheelchair-bound from seemingly no physical ailment suggests that when she was stripped of her role as Guardian of the Thirteeners, she lost her will and her drive, so much so that it affects her physically. Most of the members of Ape's controlled society exhibit an extreme form of this power of purpose. With purpose they function, without it they collapse. But because of the stripping away of personal autonomy, most everyone is unable to seize a purpose for themselves. It must be given to them from the outside. Dr. Franks has indeed set Nana and Hachi both up with new purpose, but even still, Nana doubts that she can fulfill this role. However, as we noted in the scene with the child in the infirmary, once she accepts this purpose, it gives her strength. It births her anew. Thus, at the very end, she is no longer this uncertain, disheveled, weak Nana. She is upright and confident, even speaking to fake Nana with authority. In that same scene, the Nines provide their own example, even literally saying that they were created to fight, so they just want to fulfill their purpose. There's been no characterization to suggest that they are suddenly sympathetic to our Thirteeners or their cause. Instead, we saw very well the way they were falling apart without Papa to give them direction, both mentally last time and physically this time. Assuming some new purpose, even one as simple as just continuing a fight gets them out of bed, healthier, even smiling. These are all examples of people who were floundering without purpose, then found a purpose and a path to pursue it, and immediately were in a better place. There are also people in our squad who are not so lucky. Mitsuru and Kokoro are still suffering the effects of the memory manipulation, and so differ from the rest by not remembering the goal of a life beyond piloting. Each of them had also previously given up their own isolation to be with one another, a situation of finding purpose in each other that is very similar to Hero in Zero Two. Having that taken away, and yet also unable to simply fight for the sake of Papa, 
Both of them are at a loss as to what to do with themselves. This is compounded by the news of the pregnancy. Thus, we see each of them asking others what they should do. Mitsuru being unable to talk to Kokoro, and each of them uncertain about their roles in the committee at the beginning, and so on. At the end, it seems they cannot even go fight owing to her pregnancy. However, whatever Mitsuru says to Hiro at the end there might be the beginning of a solution to this. Uh, we will just have to wait and see. So then lastly, I want to point out how the people who never lost their sense of purpose fared. By that, I mean the other six members of Squad 13. They go through a lot this episode. The difficulty of trying to organize things, the burden and fear of watching people collapse around them, the shock of Zero Two and Hero's intent to leave, uh, the failing of the Klops, uh, and so on. Yet in spite of this, there's never a moment where they give up or stop trying to work toward this goal of a new life. Even the end decision to go with Hero into space is a path towards this purpose. It's not for a lack of hardship that they don't stop trying. The episode itself is a lesson in that old adage that with freedom comes responsibility, and they are woefully unprepared for the responsibility. But there's not a point where those six call it quits. That's the power of purpose. So next, uh, death and rebirth. This one we'll cover just in brief. I thought last time that the Grand Cradle and other details surrounding Strelizia's position inside Star Entity suggested the idea of something new being born. This time we see that Zero Two has died in one sense and been reborn as someone whose mind lives in a machine. She's not completely dead, I mean, but I think it's significant that her body retains the injury link to her mind. Um, but this definitely is a death-like state resulting in a new and different thing. Additionally, we have the contrast of the parasite graves next to the fields of crops. We've been over the idea of growing plants as rebirth symbols a lot, um, but the contrast of having their dead squadmates in the ground right next to the plants in the ground that they hope will sustain them is unlikely to be an accident. Symbolically, the deaths of those parasites reflect the death of the society structure above them and the consequences of that while at the same time, this allows for the rebirth of a new society and a new life for the parasites that did not perish. However, just like the plants, it's not quite so simple to will a rebirth into being. Both their fledgling proto-society and their crops are withering on the vine. The rebirth is not complete. It's possible more death may be required. Lastly, there is another visual reinforcement of this idea in the showdown between Godo and Hiro. The first one takes place in front of a huge window which shows a vibrant sunset. The sun setting is a frequent death symbol, and the conflict and actual violence of that scene suggest that some truly serious rifts may exist in our squad, that their unity might be in mortal danger. However, that night involves a lot of conversations and decisions and new acceptance of purpose. Frequently, we see the characters either framed by stars or staring directly at them, and the episode itself is called Stargazers. The characters are looking outward, is what is implied, but each is really looking inward as the night progresses. Thus, the next scene between Hero and the group is one of rebirth, and it takes place at sunrise. The extreme angle of the lighting tells us that the sun is just over the horizon. As sunset often stands in for death, sunrise stands in for rebirth and the decisions and purposes internalized overnight have resulted in a rebirth for our squad and those around them as they face the future. It's a great use of visual symbolism to reflect these final scenes. Next, I want to talk about the mirror arcs between Hero Zero Two and Mitsuru and Kokoro. 
We've talked before about how many similarities are shared between the stories of these two couples coming together, especially notable since they are the only two examples in the series. I won't rehash it all, but there are two things I wanted to touch on. One is an observation of the current situation between Mitsuru and Kokoro. Even though both were mind-wiped together and reverted in a way back to their original parasite selves, since then it seems Mitsuru increasingly notices and worries about Kokoro. This is a flip from the early part of their story, where Kokoro is the one who notices Mitsuru and starts pursuing him and then her desire to have a baby. It occurred to me that this, too, mirrors part of Hero and Zero Two's story. In the first part of our series, up until Hero's change in purpose that I talked about uh, just a minute ago, it is Zero Two who is the one pursuing Hero. Just like Kokoro, she initiates both their partnership and their physical relationship, eventually resulting in a shift of purpose for Hero. To me, this mirrors Kokoro and Mitsuru's story, with perhaps the Episode 6 Rebirth for Hero being similar to Mitsuru and Kokoro's first night together. The subsequent Episodes 7 and 8 for Hero and Zero Two are a high point, which compares to Mitsuru and Kokoro building up to being married. But then, things change. The pairs start to slip apart. Memory alteration causes it for Mitsuru and Kokoro, while Zero Two's worsening mental state as her body changes uh, causes it for she and Hero. In both of these situations, it becomes the guy instead that is in the role of pursuit, of putting in the effort. Hero's attempts all through episodes 10 through 12 are this for him, while Mitsuru's current shift in focus represents his side of this pattern. In both cases, the girls' bodies are in a state of change, sorification, and pregnancy. Since Hiro is adamant that this didn't matter to him, we might soon see Mitsuru make a similar endorsement of Kokoro keeping the baby. In Hiro and Zero Two's case, Hiro's ongoing efforts eventually resulted in them restoring their memories of one another, and then eventually reconciling their relationship. They have been a strong unit ever since. We might then expect that Mitsuru and Kokoro might get their memories restored to keep that pattern going, potentially with the same result. However, Hiro and Zero Two grew toward each other even before they got their youthful memories back. The memories weren't required for their relationship, but ultimately kept it from being destroyed by Zero Two's obsession with her past darling. To keep that part of the pattern going, Mitsuru and Kokoro would need to grow toward each other again before remembering anything uh, from before. And at least in Mitsuru's case, this seems to be underway, continuing to call her Kokoro and feel pain, as well as them continuing to show us that. Um, and that certainly suggests that she is not just another random squad member to him. The fact that he can feel that pain and the memories we assume are associated with it outside of piloting might be key as well. Until now, we've only seen memory links between people in Frank's cockpits. Hero and Zero Two is the obvious one, but Hero and Ichigo and Hero and the Princess all shared memories while connected to one another. But with Kokoro's pregnancy, we can be sure they aren't going to be piloting together anytime soon. That was the thing we thought might enable some memory restoration for them. However, we have some groundwork for this to not be as exclusive as we thought. Hero and Zero Two managed to make a mind connection earlier in this episode, revealing the truth of her situation. And Nana managed to have her altered memories surface due to the pain of confrontation with Kokoro and the weeks of watching Squad 13 behave in a way that had been denied to her. So I would guess that some restoration of memory is still possible here, though I'm not 100% sure it is even necessary depending on how much time these two get to spend with one another in these final episodes. 
the memory totem of the wedding rings might still be the key. So the second thing I want to touch on is where the parallels might lead for Hero and Zero 2. Like I said, I think Kokoro's child is basically the safest character in the universe right now. Um, I am assuming she will give birth. What I want to ask is, what is the equivalent of giving birth for Hero and Zero 2 story? Zero 2 might indeed have the right of it as far as her not being able to reproduce. It seems now that she and the Nines can pilot not by virtue of fertility, but by virtue of actually being Klaxosaurs themselves, just like the Franks. Childbirth in the way we think of it might simply not be in the cards for them. So what is a metaphorical equivalent to that? If they cannot birth new humans or new Klaxosapiens into the world, what should we expect them to birth instead? I ask because it's possible they could birth something uh, metaphorically, regardless of whether or not they make it out of the story or end up transformed for good. It was while thinking of this and examining our new idea last time about books or stories being their own pattern that I started to think about how all of these ideas could synthesize together. Thus, I now want to share my current work on what I am pretentiously calling a grand synthesis of theme. And yes, I know that is a ridiculous title. Before I begin this, I want to make sure you know that this is still incomplete. Not only can we not fully look at the way our theme synthesize until the show is over and we see the complete picture, this is also still a very rough draft of my thoughts on the matter. Dragon the Franks has a much higher number of thematic patterns and multi-level symbolism compared to your average anime series. Um, there's going to be a lot to put together. Therefore, the analysis video for the final episode of the series is unlikely to be the final video I make about it. What we're about to cover will probably spawn its own video, or maybe several in the future, as having time to look back at the entirety of the work will give us new perspective and insight. This takes time though, and I have no answer at the moment for what the results will look like. So then, let's have a look at that rough draft. You are probably tired of me bringing it up by now, but way back in episode 5, Zero Two's encounter with Ichigo led her to ask a question that I thought might eventually become the central question of the series. What is human to you people? To rephrase that, we might ask it this way. What does it mean to be human? A lot of science fiction stories explore this idea. It's almost unheard of for a story involving artificial intelligence to not feature it prominently. That's not the only place it shows up, but it is most common when discussing synthetic or alternate consciousnesses. By contrasting the ways in which they are similar or different to human consciousnesses, those stories are asking us to consider which aspects of our own selves are essential to the concept of being human, or not. Despite the lack of any synthetic intelligence, I feel Darling in the Franks is asking us the same question, and our themes are basically the way the story answers it. Now, dystopian stories often cross into what is human territory as well, so that's not a complete surprise. The way Darling is different, however, is that most dystopian stories involve a single, oppressive, and monolithic society and follow the stories of people who push back against it. A two-faction tale and two viewpoints to consider, the societies and the rebels. Darling on the Franks, on the other hand, has four. The Klaxosapiens, the adults under Verm's influence, the Parasites at large, and our Squad 13, with people like Dr. Franks as a bit of a wild card. We talked last time about how Squad 13 differed from the rest, and I asked what about them made them different. 
Klaxosapiens rejected Verm's offer of assimilation, and yet in the process of opposing them and bending their will to that purpose, they surrendered all of their individuality and self-determination anyway. Adults in the society came to the same result, but for a different reason. They took a smothering path of peace and pleasure and self-indulgence. The general parasites also lack individualism and autonomy. Their purpose is entirely obedience and self-sacrifice. They are most like the Klaxosapiens in this, yet while the former got to choose this path, the parasites had no such choice. They arrived at a similar place nonetheless. That leaves Squad 13, who didn't start out this way, but eventually got to a place where they valued their own individuality and, perhaps more importantly, their right to self-determination. There is a third thing they value too, uh, which I will talk about in a moment. Self-determination is particularly important though. I said before that, in retrospect, it seems essential that they chose to reject Papa and their duty before it was revealed that there were aliens among them. This was probably the culmination of that rebellious spirit we had picked up long ago, and seizing this idea of creating something for the future and finding a life beyond piloting was fulfilled when they demanded their freedom. They demand their right to self-determination, their right to choose. This is one of the main things that separates them from the other three groups. In addition to this and individualism, I want to put forth a third thing that Squad 13 comes to value in contrast to others. They value social bonds. Now, it took them most of the series to get to this point, and I don't think necessarily that self-determination, individualism, and social bonds by themselves answer the question of what it means to be human. But it's possible that the reasons one comes to value these things might provide that answer. To look at that, then, we need to look at its opposite. For all four of these groups, the antagonist to their lives is the same. Verm. Assimilation destroys the three things we just talked about as valuable, the things that make Squad 13 ready to fight to hold on to their humanity. Since we've seen that assimilation cannot be completely forced, we infer that some type of consent must required, some surrender. Thus, Verm's tactic requires them to assault these three concepts, eroding their value so that assimilation will become an attractive option. How do they do that? I'm proposing four broad categories to their strategy. It's important to note that they might not apply all of them equally, or even at all, depending on the target and the desired result. These categories are suppression of nature, suppression of knowledge, suppression of bonds, and suppression of self. I did not succeed in separating these fully in our next section, so please forgive them mixing together. Um, it is something I will revise if I get a chance to revisit the idea. I will point out our existing themes as they come up during this examination. First up, the suppression of nature is one of the more obvious ones. Not only does it help them assault those three precious concepts, but nature itself is a force in opposition to their own. Nature embodies the idea of chaos in opposition to order. That is why nature versus artifice is such a common theme. Verm obviously puts an unusually high value on order, and so nature becomes something of a mortal enemy to them. They want peace and control and conformity and an endless status quo. The inherent randomness, change, and violence of nature all upset these ideals. To this end, they assault the natural progression of both humanity and the world. The ecological disaster they inflict on Earth is an obvious attack on nature, but it also is an attack on individuality and self-determination. As we saw this time, the damage to the soil may render any attempt at self-sufficiency impossible. 
The squad even discusses how magma energy is used for everything. This creates a situation in which humans are fully dependent on the ones who control magma. They do not even have a choice about whether they cooperate. They do not have the option to go back to nature and away from the artifice. They also attack fertility itself. Obviously, reproduction is one of those bare minimum things that life requires, but attacking fertility is more than just upsetting the usual state of things. It's also a suppression of bonds. By eliminating human reproduction, the adults no longer have children that they create bonds with. Now, there's no new generation growing up and creating new connections between families and friends, and there's no expansion of extended families and the sharing of caretaking duties and all of the things involved in child rearing that bond societies together. This eventually results in the extreme isolation we see in episode 10 when we get a peek behind the curtain at how the adults live their lives. They suppress fertility in the parasites in a different way. They are perfectly capable of having children with one another. So instead, Verm uses a different tack. All four suppressions are used here. Knowledge-wise, they make childbearing taboo and eliminate any mention of it for the parasites. As I said back in episode two, when we first saw the piloting process, our parasites are incredibly ignorant about sexuality, and it was obviously by design. Then there is suppression of nature. Normally, parasites entering puberty suffer some kind of intervention, and though it's never explained, I would wager it somehow curtails their hormonal urges and sexual desires while still leaving them technically fertile. If they do get pregnant, in comes suppression of self. They do not get to stay pregnant if it still somehow happens, uh, as we saw from today's episode. They get no choice. There is additionally some suppression of bonds here. We saw them take Mitsuru and Kokoro and mind wipe them for breaking this taboo, which results in the destruction of their relationship. We appear to see something similar in Nana's backstory as she was beside herself following her partner's death. Fertility is also linked strongly with death and rebirth, which is an entire thematic concept that Verm opposes. Death and rebirth is about cycles. Something ends and something else begins. It's an inseparable part of the way nature operates, but Verm doesn't like change. They like uniformity and the ever-present status quo. Thus, they attack death itself, suppressing nature by bestowing immortality upon humanity and the resulting infertility and all that it caused. They essentially attack rebirth in a way as well when dealing with Klaxociety, trying to exterminate them utterly. Eliminating death could also be seen as a suppression of bonds. One of the things that the adult Zorame spends a day with says is about how much better it is not to have to rely on others for every little thing. She thought of life before immortality as uncomfortable, and it's obvious the bonds between her and her partner are anything but. Taking death and its threat away from a society could definitely take the significance out of cooperation with others, or the need to work for any common cause. This seems like it is exalting that concept of individuality, and in a way it is, but takes it to an extreme end. Doing so destroys social bonds, and the complete reliance on ape to maintain their situation destroys their self-determination as well. Uh, what else? Um, Suppression of self finds itself in opposition to the power of names theme, as well as a lot of our flight metaphors, and of course is part of the tension between individual versus society and individualism versus collectivism. The humanizing power of names is just the sort of thing they can't allow for the parasites, so they suppress their personhood with code numbers. Every moment of their days is also prescribed for them, in opposition to the idea of flight or flying free. 
They literally refer to their boarding house as the birdcage. There is no flight here, no ability to self-determine. These dehumanizing actions also effectively suppress social bonds, something that was also achieved by disappearing some children without warning. You're much less likely to get attached to someone else if you know they might vanish tomorrow. Finally, there's another thing they do that involves all four suppressions, and this is the thing I feel foolish for having missed. I talked last time about how I started to think of books and stories as their own pattern to consider, and I demonstrated how books directly shaped the journeys of Hero and Zero Two. Not only in the highly symbolic picture book, which is with us even now, but their own actions in their youth essentially enabled our narrative to develop the way it did at all. Books were not just symbolic, they were causal. This is true for more than just Hero and Zero Two. The most obvious is Kokoro, whose discovery of the maternity book eventually led to her desire to have a baby, uh, pursuing that desire with Mitsuru, and then all of the twists that have happened since. Um, but there are others. One of the first clues that Ikuno might be into girls was the lily-bedecked books that we saw her read at times, the lily being a symbol associated with lesbians. We don't know the content of those books, but it seems plausible that whatever she found there was helping her understand herself. They also rely on books when they try to cook for themselves the first time, a critical step on their journey to believing that they could be independent. They seem to have consulted books yet again this episode when it came to planting the crops. So books are more than symbolic in this work, they also directly influence the plot and the characters' decisions and identities. Well, there is something else that I knew influenced the plot and characters, but it never occurred to me that it might also be symbolic. And that is the process of manipulating memories. Dystopian societies and censorship go hand in hand, right? Limiting the knowledge that a people have limits their ability to question or deviate from the official narrative. Banning books and controlling the media is a normal method, and we see this in the universe that, despite the libraries, things like childbirth have been excised from the parasite's potential knowledge. But how much better of a censorship tool is direct manipulation of memories? How much easier to control the official narrative? If books and what they represent are one force in our story, then this memory manipulation stands as a force in direct opposition. I mean, there's literally even a scene where Zero Two is eating the picture book to fight against the attempts to take her memories away. The symbolism there might as well have a giant circle drawn around it, and I still missed it. They even doubled down in episode 16. Hero and Zero Two have gotten their memories and their relationship back, and what does Zero Two immediately start doing? Recreating the picture book. So yeah, the memory manipulation is a huge tool for Verm and a huge symbol of their oppressive ways. It's all for suppressions. Suppression of knowledge by taking away what you know that they want you to forget, suppression of nature by altering your mind, and any deviations from the order that they prefer. Suppression of self, of course, by taking away part of your personality, breaking the normal progression of memories that tell each of us who we are. We saw how different Hiro was after his incident, and Mitsuru and Kokoro were drastically changed as well. Which of course leads to suppression of bonds. Both couples had their partnerships completely dissolved from the memory wipe, and Hiro and Mitsuru even had their friendships sundered for a very long time. It attacks all the concepts that Squad 13 comes to value. Their individualism, their self-determination, and their social bonds. So looking back, there were two things that Verm attacked with particular gusto, using all four suppressions. 
fertility, and memories. As I look at these ideas and what they represent, an overall conflict suggests itself between the ideals of Squad 13 and those of Verm, and that is transformation versus stasis. I mentioned before about the possible anagram of Verm and Ape spelling vampire. I don't know if that's reaching or not, but consider them as vampires for a moment. Vampires don't reproduce. They don't combine with each other to create new things. Instead, they make other people into things like them. They halt the aging of anyone they convert, turning them immortal and unchanging. However, they can only increase by converting others, by assimilating other beings into the same thing as they are. They can produce nothing new. They can only try to force others to conform to their own situation. This pretty well matches the universe of stasis that Verm appears to favor, the future of calmness and uniformity. They cannot abide the change inherent in normal life. They want to swim in the same river twice, the same river every time. Against this, Squad 13 champions the cause of transformation. Of all the ways the world shifts and changes, dies, is reborn, creates, and destroys. To do so, they particularly champion these two ideas that Verm most wants to suppress, fertility and memories. To start with fertility, I said long ago that I thought this show did not contain sexuality, but rather it was about sexuality. It turned out to be much more than that, but the importance of sexuality has hardly diminished. The suggestive nature of connecting and the posing of the pilots and the awakening of puberty and the beach trip and all that was not a cheap trick for views, not something gratuitous or grafted on to an unrelated narrative. Sexuality and romance and fertility have come down the stretch to represent one of the most important forces in forging Squad 13 into what they are, and it forms an ideological shield against Verm's attack on their individualism, their self-determination, and especially their social bonds. This squad's personal sexuality and fertility are reflected over and over in the wider world, with all of the flower and plant symbolism and the contrast to the barrenness outside of Mistletane. Into this idea, I finally want to talk about color symbolism and how it may relate to Verm. The two colors we've become familiar with throughout the show are red and blue. It's the dominant color of our two openings. It's the color of the two X's in the title. It's the colors representing Hero and Zero Two in relation to each other, and it's representative of the two genders. The connection meter shows pistols with blue pulse and stamen with red, and successful connection results in both of them appearing across the Franks' faces to indicate the combination. When Verm shows up, it's obvious that their representative color is purple, and hey, that's red and blue combined, right? Seems they are obviously in favor of a single hue, of mixing former distinctions together into one. That even includes gender, as Nine Alpha's speech back in episode 17 suggests. But wait, if boys and girls are red and blue, then isn't them connecting together to form either Frank's connections or babies a way of forming purple? Isn't this a surrendering of their individual selves that is much more like what Verm values than what they value? Actually, no. I have Kai Zero, a Kai Zero? Well, I have this commenter to thank for pointing this out to me. Red and blue don't actually ever mix together to form purple. They mix together, sure, as in the connection meter, and the X's on Frank's, even the way they swirl together in the opening credits. But they still stay distinctly red and blue. They don't become purple. They don't lose their individual hues. 
Even when Zero Two and the Claxosaur Princess are seemingly both connected to Strelazia Apis, the beam they fire together is not purple, but blue and red alongside each other. And this is exactly how a couple works. Two people in love, like Mitsuru and Kokoro, or Hiro and Zero Two, they don't become a single being. They become two different beings joined together. They don't surrender their individuality. They do give up a little self-determination, because they now share decisions about their choices and their direction in life, but they give them up in exchange for an increased social bond between them. There's no elimination or suppression of those values, just a shuffle in priority. Should a couple have a child together, that child is not just some blending of the two of them. It's not purple. It's a wholly new thing. And in this analogy, it is either red or blue itself, able one day to join with someone else without ever actually turning purple. In this way, the procession of fertility is a refutation of Verm's uniform purpleness, as a couple is able to come together without losing their own distinction. In our story, one of our couples in particular is carrying the standard, Kokoro and Mitsuru. I know they're a little lost at the moment, but she's carrying possibly the first normal pregnancy in a long time. When the child is born, it represents something wholly new, a transformation of the world and a direct attack on Verm's desired stasis. Fertility, then, is passing life forward, combining and creating anew something for the future of humanity. The other idea Verm seems particularly against is memory, and the standard bearer for this concept is our other couple, Hero and Zero Two. Memory is what they attack directly at our narrative, right? Uh, but like I said, it just occurred to me that this is representative of a greater idea. In fact, books and stories and memories together form this whole concept, and that is the idea of humanity's shared knowledge. Information, but not just its existence. No, it's the passing forward of this information that forms this concept, just like the passing forth of new life forms the concept of fertility. The weight of shared human knowledge is responsible for their world, and for ours. Do any of you know how to create a phone, or a computer, or whatever you're watching this on from scratch, from minerals and elements in the ground? To generate the electricity required from nothing but raw nature? To write all the necessary software on the hardware that you somehow also created from not? Probably not, right? That's the work of more than a single lifetime. And yet, it's not even enough knowledge required to make everything that went into this one meaningless YouTube video that exists among billions of others. We rely heavily, heavily on the accumulated knowledge of the past and the shared knowledge of the present. Humanity is something else entirely without it. And knowledge itself is transformative. It changes you. The arc words for this episode are that you can never swim in the same river water twice. I would add that you can never read the same book twice, but for the opposite reason as the river. The book itself doesn't change, but you do. You can never be the same person as the first time you read it. The very act of reading it before changed you, and will change the way you read it when you do so again. Knowledge is transformative, but much like a population of life forms, the body of knowledge itself continually changes and grows. It is in a constant state of transformation. Small wonder Verm would find cause to oppose it, to want to restrict it and control it. Even without the authoritarian advantages suppression brings, this increasing and changing mass of information defies the stasis that they long for. And of course, we see the advantages and power that sharing knowledge brings. 
Hero gets the idea of naming from stories and all of those humanizing effects. He learns to question the world around him. He learns to lick a wound. He shares this process with others and they learn about themselves or how to cook or to plant things or how to chase a future of their own devising. Heck, even the river quote from this episode is something that both Goro and Ichigo admits that they got from Hiro. Hiro and Zero Two, of course, prize the books of their youth and the direction they created for each of them, just as they prize the memories that were stolen. The sharing of knowledge and stories within Squad 13 help bolster the ways that they value those three precious concepts, not just by increasing their shared experiences, but by exposing them to ideas beyond the narrow selection their rulers intended. So even though Hiro and Zero Two might not be capable of having children in the same way as Mitsuru and Kokoro, and eventually all the remaining children, they are instead the champions of stories and knowledge and shared information. This is a legacy for the future every bit as important as the ability to reproduce. A reborn human society absolutely requires both. I asked before how the birth of Kokoro's child might be mirrored in Hiro and Zero Two's story if they can't actually have children. I don't know what exactly, but I would guess it's something related to this concept. Finally, there is actually a symbol in our work that combines these two ideas. It combines both the passing forward of information and the passing forward of life. And that is DNA, or our genes, or to use the symbolic element the series does, our XX and XY chromosomes. I think the chromosomes are probably the most appropriate one of those because it specifies a separation into gender, into individuals, into red and blue distinct, not merely purple. Individualism preserved despite social bonds and self-determination shared between them, and inherent to their nature, a pressing goal, to leave a mark on the future, babies or stories or both. So that is the unified idea so far. I know it needs clarity, but I'm going to be surprised if this video even makes it out in time, so this is all I've got right now. But expect some more. So there is no what to watch for today, despite what I said last time. Um, much like the boards, I think I'm probably the only one that cares about that section anyway, um, and I intend to alter it when I revise the full spectrum format in the fall. However, what we will do is after the last episode, we will look back and see if we ended up with any mysteries that never got addressed or clarified. So on to speculation. Much shorter, owing to how much time we spent last time guessing about Zero Two's fate. Uh, mostly right on that count, though like I said, they did a better job than what I was anticipating. We also got the bonus of Naomi being among the children, uh, though I did not guess that they would all be just frozen somewhere. Naomi being alive gives us some perspective on what type of story we're in, something we said a long time ago, especially how the deception turned out to be a positive rather than a negative. I think it's now especially unlikely that any of our main cast dies before the end. Hero, Zero Two, and potentially Kokoro are all still at risk, I think, uh, but only as part of a finale. And I actually think transformation and separation are more likely than death. I do think the Nines will probably bite it, or at least two of them will. I kind of feel like that's their function here at the end, um, which is kind of cynical of me, but there it is. Let's see, I have a kind of um, thematic speculation, I guess. Like, if it comes true, it's just an expansion of theme, but it's really a wild guess on my part. Uh, here goes. Throughout this episode, we had frequent images of what looked like shooting stars. They are probably actually Klaxosaurs leaving or falling back to Earth, 
But remember we had that whole shooting star bit at the end of the beach episode when Ichigo tried to confess the first time. Regardless of what they are, I'm pretty sure they're supposed to invoke shooting stars again. Back then, Ichigo likened the light they gave off to gentle rays of hope and to her squadmates, and she wished that light would never fade. That is pretty relevant to this moment in our series, I think, especially the nighttime moments between the death of sundown and the rebirth of sunrise that I spoke about earlier. What I want to talk about, though, is the other part of her and Hiro's conversation, where they discuss Orion and the hidden 15th star, the Ichigo star. They said they'd look for it together one day after leaving Garden, as it's difficult to spot with the naked eye. Since we are about to go to space, I feel like there's a good chance they might be able to see that star. What does the star signify then? It's possible it has something to do with Ichigo's fate, and I pointed out back in that beach episode that the transient nature of shooting stars might be a worrisome fact. So maybe that. But then I also thought, is it possible it's actually that number, 15, that is being referenced? What do we have 15 of in this show, one of which is hidden? I'm going to suggest that maybe it's something like this. We have 10 members of Squad 13. They have two handlers, Nada and Hachi, making 12. They were shaped largely by Dr. Franks and his efforts, so 13. And both in the past and the present, their situation was hugely influenced by the Klaxosaur Princess, with whom Zero Two might actually be joined right now. That makes 14. That leaves something hidden that we nevertheless count as part of this group. And in that context, the 15th star might be Kokoro's baby. Ichigo likened a shooting star's light to both Hope and her squadmates, and a new child in this world would be both of these things. Hope for the future of humanity, and also a part of their squad. Um, and a very unifying part, I think. I've said that Squad 13 are essentially family with one another, but a child born to these two would make them a family in truth. But of course, they can't see it right now. They may not get to see it unless they take to space. It may be that with the time to make the journey to the battle and back, enough time passes that when they return, whoever returns, our little 15th star will not be hidden at all anymore. We'll see if that holds water or means something else soon enough. The last thing to talk about is, again, Zero Two. We know that her mind is in Strelesia, which seems to mean that she is piloting Star Entity as though she is the pistol in a normal Franks, making its injuries her injuries. But what about the princess? We know she lent her strength to Zero Two, and she's physically vanished from the cockpit, but what does that mean? I talked about the red and blue swirling nature of Strelesia Apus's attack compared to the blue-only version when it was just the princess. But is this the combination of the two genetic twins, or is it the combination of Hero and Zero Two? Both are red and blue pairs. Yet, Strelesia Apus has retained her red and blue markings even without Hero, whereas Apus had blue markings only when the princess was piloting, uh, just as Strelesia normally only has red markings when Zero Two pilots it. This suggests to me that the red-blue comes from the two Klaxosapiens rather than from Hero. Is it possible that just as Zero Two is sort of merged with Strelesia, the princess is merged with Star Entity? Is that why all of the other Klaxosaurs seem to be coordinating with her? When we think about how the Klaxosaurs came to be, we saw that the females bonded to the body of weapons and the males bonded to the control core. In the display for a positive and negative pulse, boys are represented by red and the girls by blue. 
So in a way, the body is blue and the core is red. If we consider 02 and Princess's colors, 02 as the core in Strelesia and the Princess as the body in Star Entity has a type of logic to it. Or are they more joined to one another, as the abnormally high reading of her pulse last time might suggest? Is this why she doesn't return to her body? Is it more than one body can handle now? Would either of these situations allow them to pilot it without a partner in the normal sense? I mean, that seemed to be a plot point. There was some reason that Princess took Hero with her, even though she operated in stampede mode. Or is Zero Two up there in some incredibly extended stampede mode, hardly thinking at all and just attacking? This also should lead us to ask why she did what she did anyway. As we saw this time, her actions fulfill the picture book development of the Beast Princess changing into something besides what she was before and then fleeing. Being conjoined to a giant robot definitely qualifies here and is part of why I speculated Zero Two's situation the way I did, but that doesn't explain her actual desire to leave. I think perhaps we should look at the rest of the picture book context for that. See, the Beast Princess has the option to go back to what she was but only at the cost of the prince's life. It's not just because of her physical change that she flees, she also does it to spare the prince. Perhaps this is why Zero Two takes Strelesia Apus and leaves Earth. It may be that she could return to her body and be back to fully Klaxo Sapien, but something about the process could kill Hero. Um, that could be it. Or she could take to space to chase after and hopefully destroy Verm because that is what is required to spare the prince's life. She's not so much fleeing as she is chasing. I wonder too if the guilt she carries from killing past Stamen influences her. There may be nothing there, but it's still odd to me that we've never actually dealt with that. The dream she has when past Stamen are reaching for her is also the dream where Star Entity is reaching for her which has always made me wonder if those thoughts are conjoined for her. Anyway, whatever the situation is now, what do we suspect it will be in the future? Way back when we first talked about the Beast and Prince story, we also talked about all the other stories that are possibly invoked or suggested by it, like the Shakespearean tragedies or the Little Mermaid and so on. I pointed out then that the one thing that is never tried in those stories is the other party taking on a transformation of their own. I thought perhaps that Hero taking her blood into himself might be the beginning of how they defeat the story's pattern, and in a sense, that is largely what they have done. The natural conclusion from this, then, is that Hero will once again chase the idea of becoming the same kind of thing as Zero Two, making it possible for them to be together in defiance of the fate that would keep them apart. Last time, I even suggested as much that he would be willing to be merged with Strelesia himself, making them a mirror to the Klaxosaur arrangement of old. This might make our show title very literal, Darling in the Franks. But remember what I said earlier about red and blue mixing together but not becoming purple? If that's really an intended reading of our color symbolism, then it suggests that such a fusion is not likely, that remaining distinct yet together is their end. I'm not entirely sure what that implies in this case, but it's also consistent with the Jin bird metaphor. Two Jin birds lean on each other to fly, but they don't actually fuse into a single bird. One thing I was wondering at the end of this episode is whether they are taking Zero Two's body with them. It's the kind of thing I would assume the hero would do, in hopes of getting her mind out of Strelesia and back into her normal self, yet there's no indication that this is what they've done. 
Considering her constant injury, it might not be safe to take her with them, but I also feel there is some logic to having her physically present if they hope to restore her. Can they actually do that, though? Suddenly, a moment from our original opening credits comes back to me, the very end where Strelizia is holding Hero and seems to bend down to try to kiss him, leading to Zero Two actually bursting out of the cockpit to get to him instead. Is that foreshadowing the future that we are just now approaching? One last thing, and this is about the fate of Klaxosaurs, and invokes our red and blue pattern once more. We know that Verm has the Lance of Life, the Ringhorn, and that it is composed of Klaxosaur cores. We're counting on that to come back into the story, especially with its mythological significance. But being composed of cores makes it basically male, right? The cores are what the male Klaxosapiens bonded to. Does this make Star Entity basically female? A mass of all-female bodies? Considering the womb-like nature of that grand cradle room, this doesn't seem too far-fetched. What could possibly happen if Ringhorny and Star Entity combine or crash into one another or are otherwise brought together? Like, is there some hope for a reborn Klaxo society here? I have no idea how that would work, but... Well, I asked earlier what a possible parallel to childbirth could be for Hero and Zero Two. Is it possible they help restore Klaxo sapiens back to fertility and back to having a future? What got me wondering this is our destination. I feel like even if they put their differences aside, Klaxosiety and Homo sapiens probably can't coexist long term. It might be a bad idea to have them both start over in the same space, but we're on our way to Mars, the red planet, and leaving Earth, the blue planet. Not very blue at the moment, thanks to Ape's nonsense, but I think a return to blue is in the cards for the world reborn. Is it possible we end up with both civilizations able to restart on a pair of planets colored red and blue? Does this explain the otherwise surprise introduction of Mars? Well, that's all I've got. That was really more questions than speculation, but synthesizing our themes took up all of my time and that section was still a hot mess. I like the force of the ideas in that section though, uh, so maybe with some time to structure it better, it will turn out a little more coherent. Um, I am definitely not done with it. Tell me your thoughts on that if you like. Um, for now, let's just prepare ourselves for what is likely a two-part finale as our societies and their ideals collide in the river of stars above. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.